Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm William, and this week, Sarah is not on the episode. She has some life stuff happening and decided that the show must go on. And so we are going to do this episode without her, sadly. This week, we are talking about the intersection of queerness and masculinity, which is appropriate because today marks the first day of National Pride Month, which is really exciting. As you listen to this episode, feel free to uh, step away if you need to. We might get into some some conversations about violence, some conversations about homophobia. So please take care of yourself as you see fit. On this episode with me today, though, we have Roy Rios. He is the manager on the prevention team, and we're finally getting him on an episode, and we're so excited about it. Hi, Roy. Hey, William. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm super honored to be here with you. A little bit of a bummer that Sarah is not with us, but like you said, the show must go on. So yeah. uh, thinking about Sarah and keeping her in our space. Yes, um, absolutely. As we always start out with, we want to know who our guests are. So Roy, tell the people a little bit about yourself. How did you get in this movement? How did you get to TCFV? Tell them all the things. So this year, I believe, marks my 18th year working in the domestic violence arena. Um, I started when I was 22 years old as a volunteer at Women's Protective Services of Lubbock. I had come to realize that there was an organization that is doing this amazing work. I did not realize how vast these networks were and how much was happening until I started there. But yeah, I started as a volunteer. I was 22 years old. I wanted to work with young people. I wanted to, back in those days, I wanted to be an artist. And I thought I want I could go and just teach art at WPS and just work with young people and do art and it'd be great. And I got exposed to all the amazing things that were actually happening there. And it opened my eyes and it opened my heart and made me really excited to figure out how do I just do this all the time. And after several years of work of volunteering and working part time, I got a full time job as a hotline advocate and loved it. I mean, it was just so incredible to see the work happening to help survivors. And as I was working in the hotline, an opportunity came open to be the coordinator for a for the community education and uh, prevention department, and I got the job. Um, and it was like such a life changing experience. It really, really was because from there, my eyes were just completely open to the prevention world, to how to engage communities. I was really just living my dream with this amazing job, and through that job. I got to work with TCFB on the LGBTQ stakeholders group and for a few years served as a, a community liaison. I don't know what you would call it back then. I don't remember. But from there, I learned about an opportunity for an actual job at TCFE on the support to service providers team. Long story short, through a very long interview process, I actually got the job and here I am today, um, almost nine years later, working at TCFE. I started in support to service providers, working with on all things advocacy related, intervention related, and battering intervention related, where I spent a lot of my time at TCFE. 
And then I got to come work in the prevention department with all you amazing folks. And the rest of far is, is history. So that is a really long story about how I got here. A little bit about me. No, like what a fun journey though. And, yeah, and so many different things. And I mean, I feel like you've been part of the prevention specifically, but also just DV landscape in Texas, kind of far reaching, like from Lubbock to Austin and everywhere in between, because you go and do trainings and everybody loves you and like routinely asks like, where's Roy when we do trainings? So it makes my heart happy. I, it's such an, you know, this, I'm like, it's such an honor just to get to be invited to communities that you don't live in and don't yeah. spend all your time in and to get to talk about these issues but I mean, these issues are so near and dear to my heart, especially like today's topic. I mean, we're here to talk about, I get part of our work, we get to train on LGBTQ advocacy. And part of that is like understanding the root causes of everything, right? Yeah. And how masculinity, toxic masculinity have impacted communities and how it impacts survivors in their day-to-day life. So it's just an honor to be able to be in those communities. And I appreciate it. Uh, so... Because it's Pride Month officially, our fun question today will be, what are your most memorable experiences or earliest experiences, however you want to answer the question, of Pride? Well, happy Pride um, to everybody listening again. I think I said this already, but happy Pride to you, William. I want to say that my most memorable Pride is 2015, the year marriage equality happened. I was... Uh, in a in a long term relationship with my now husband, and we were just like off the you know we were just so excited that marriage equality was a real thing. We I was actually in a relationship with someone that would want to marry, and was so excited to get the opportunity to. So that was our first pride, and it was in Houston, and it was I mean just the energy was palpable. I mean it was people were so excited. I think everybody felt like we had really won so much and there was so much to celebrate. There was so much history that we had to honor and folks who had championed that moment for decades and decades. And here it was finally, um, we had this opportunity. And so just the energy we were in Houston, downtown was crazy. And I just want to forget that moment. I got to spend it with, with my, you know, again, my now husband, um, Never forget that moment. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember when marriage equality passed. And so up until, I mean, even now, I mean, so live in Austin now. I moved here from Atlanta. I moved to Atlanta from Jacksonville, Florida. And in all three of those places, Pride is not in June. So in Atlanta and Jacksonville, it's in October around uh, National Coming Out Day. And then in Austin, it's in August because it starts with an A, I have no idea. I don't know why it's in August, but Houston Pride was one of the is one of the only like, prides during Pride Month that I've been to, uh, and it is it's huge and like it was also so hot and like sweaty and gross, but but it was a fun time. But yeah, one of the first ones that I actually went to uh, was in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was working at the domestic violence program there but I was volunteering with the uh, sexual violence program there and they were doing a float and they were looking for people to like help build the float and like help pass out like condoms and 
beads and candy and whatever. I'm sure there was some like information attached to the little bags. Uh, I don't remember, but um, so one of the first prides I was actually like walking in that like one of the first prides I ever went to, I was actually like walking in the parade. And so that was a fun time. That sounds incredible. And I'm sure that you passed out some really important information, but just, I mean, that's just so great about pride is the energy, you're meeting folks that you normally probably wouldn't get to meet. And you're just seeing people show up. I mean, I think for me in Houston, when I saw just all the people and it just, it reminded me that even though when you're part of the gay community, when you are a gay kid, when you're young, you may feel so siloed yeah. and thinking like you're the only queer person in the world, but actually there's so many of us, so many people who identify in the spectrum and, you know, they're like your kind of extended family that you don't really know. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, even so many like allies that go to pride, right. And just like seeing how people, like love and support each other is just emotional sometimes like just to be like these the all of these people are here celebrating queer people which is just great and you know that really reminds me kind of like our topic today thinking about toxic masculinity and you know so many of these messages that we receive are the only messages that we internalize and help shape our identities both as you know, cisgender folks, both as trans, you know, as trans folks, as non-binary folks. And, you know, those are the messages that we get. And we think that that is who we have to become. But then when you get a chance to like, see that there's so much more out there, that there's so many other folks challenging social norms in ways that empower you is incredible. And I think speaks to very much so the hope that we can continue to rewrite the script of how you get to identify and how who you are as a person is more than like these media portrayals and, and what culture in general like tries to tell us we are. Yeah. And I think it's important for people, especially younger queer people to remember that that pride did start as a protest, that it, it wasn't just, I mean, it was a celebration then too, but like it, it was a protest against uh, oppression against gender norms, against these like really awful laws and practices by communities and law enforcement. And it's important to remember the beginnings of what today's pride were, because we see, I think often we see the party and we see like, you know, the, the fun and, and that's great. Um, and that's the celebration, but it's also still, a protest. I mean, it's still a, a way to stand up and say that, like, we deserve a spot in this country. We deserve to, I mean, marriage equality wasn't the end of the fight, right? Like, and so you've got like employment discrimination, you've got housing discrimination, you've got all of these things where people, and, and then, you know, you mentioned trans folks specifically. And so, as a community, I don't think historically the LGB part of the acronym has really done their full part to uplift their trans and non-binary brothers and sisters. And there's still so much as far as like, and you see what's happening with the ledge in Texas right now, like with people attacking gender affirming care for trans youth, the sports bans, like all of that stuff. And all of that is part of what pride is for. It's not just a party to like have fun with your friends. Like it's, it's to make this statement. That's like, we belong here and we deserve a space. 
So true. I mean, you really, as you were talking, I started thinking about the struggle continues. Um, we've made so many steps forward in terms of equality, but like you said, I mean, this session, the 87th session of the Texas legislature, we saw just unprecedented attacks against the trans community that were all rooted in stigma. I mean, I don't think I really read or saw anything that was rooted in actual science and evidence that trans folks are there to harm our communities. And if it, you know, it was much more around these social messages that we received that trans folks are deviant and are predatory against our communities and our young people. And, you know, those are also messages that the, you know, in general, the queer community navigates. And again, thinking about our topic, thinking about what we get conditioned, you know, as society to think what gender norms should look like and what happens when you go against those gender norms, what kind of backlash you can experience. And we saw it firsthand when we saw our elected leaders take up things that only harmed certain people. So you're right. I think as cisgender folks, as I identify myself, it's really important for us to raise our voices and elevate, you know, the voices of trans folks, because I think there's so many amazing trans folks who are champions for their own cause. And as cis folks, we can really help create that space and, and like infiltrate it with like these really great voices from actual trans folks who can tell us the right way to, to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Using that, that privilege for sure to help uplift others is important. And on this podcast, we've done an, an episode or two about masculinity before, but we, we haven't really explored this exact intersection. Uh, I mean, it's come up, right? Because anytime you talk about masculinity, homophobia seems to creep into the conversation because it, it's a big tenant, right? The, the gender norms um, around that. But I mean, I think that the queer community experiences masculinity, not only toxic masculinity, specifically like being used against them, but also within the queer community, there's a lot of thoughts, feelings, and toxicity around masculinity um, and, and the the standards that people look for. And so, and that's the kind of stuff that we want to jump into. I guess the, the, the first like real question is like, what are some of those norms that exist that you see as harmful specifically for queer people? You know, much of what I'm going to share today, I think I'll speak from personal experience as a gay man navigating queer culture and, you know, coming into my own identity. Because I think as a young gay person growing up in a Latino neighborhood, you know, there were things that I had to, you know, aspire to. And I have, you know, I had a really like masculine dominating father who really just embodied all these like ideals of what it means to be a man, right? Like aggressive, dominant, doesn't show your emotions very much unless it's like anger or things like that. And you see this growing up and you start to internalize it. I was quite the opposite type of young person. I was gentle and I was into theater and art and I was not into cars and 
creating, you know, working in the garage with my dad, like that's not where I wanted to be. I wanted to learn a new recipe. I wanted to learn. I wanted to help my mom and grandma's clean. Like that was what I was into. But I think as a young person, and I think many young people, they get, you know, opposite messages of, you know, this is how you have to be. And I think in the, the gay community is specifically, I mean, it could even be as pronounced as like, you sound a certain way that is gay. You know, like you don't sound as masculine as you should, or you walk a way that is not masculine enough. So yeah, you walk, you know, you can walk in a manner that is not masculine enough for some people. So these are some of the things that I saw in my community growing up that, you know, if you were, as I was, like a really flamboyant queer child, you're going to get these messages that like, hey, you shouldn't be this way. You're all these things that you shouldn't be. And some of the words that I, you know, heard were like, you're a faggot, you're a queer, you're a homo, you know, things like that. And, you know, you internalize that stuff. And so you start to believe to be male or to be a man, you have to be these things and you start to shape your personality and your identity to conform to these things. And I think it can be really toxic because not everybody is predisposed or it's part of their personality to be aggressive or dominant or all of these things that society says a man should be, you know, people are different, right? Yeah. Early on you, you learn, you learn early. I, I feel like, I feel like, I mean, the queer people aren't a monolith. Right. And so like neither of their families or communities, but I feel like for me, I learned early how to police my own language and my body movements um, I learned that like the limp wrist was not something that little boys were supposed to do. Uh, right. I learned how to drop my voice in particular situations. Uh, I learned how to uh, approach different subjects with like different levels of enthusiasm, um, whether it was like sports, you're supposed to be really excited, excited about. If it was anything that was remotely feminine, you weren't excited about it. Even if you were interested, you weren't supposed to be excited. And so I learned a lot of that really early on. And, um, and like you were saying about when you encounter those slurs or like those comments about like being a sissy or like whatever, and you start to internalize that and you really start to spend so much effort trying to not be called out or noticed or attacked um, verbally or otherwise. So it's hard. It's, it's hard to spend so much energy trying to change who you are and do that constantly throughout the day at school. Like if you're also navigating that at home. So, yeah, and I think and I think so much of it, especially early on, is so connected to our sense of masculinity and about like, oh, that's not something boys do or that's not something boys are interested in. And so you just really learn how to how to mask, how, how to how to make that mask uh, and um, which is funny, like mask, M-A-S-K, not M-A-S-C. But anyway, um, it's hard and it's hard to keep it up. And you know, you were talking about growing up in uh, a Latino community. And so for for folks that may not know the term, but like there there's a term called machismo, right? And and like it has a very specific cultural meaning and impact. Um, and so I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about what that is and like how that plays into this conversation. 
You know, I think so machismo is a term that's used in Latinx communities to refer to just what you said, toxic, toxic masculinity. But, you know, I think for me, what I what I've seen is there's like a love hate relationship with this term. I think for some folks, it's a term of like, this is what you want to aspire to. And this is how men are in our culture. And that's just the golden standard. In other realms, I mean, it's referring to like really one archaic structures and communities of kind of these dominant generals, but it's also referring to like really unhealthy aspects of what it means to be a man. And you know what I will also offer as, you know, as much as my father set the stage for what a man should be, I think for the most part, I was like kind of checked by the women in my community. You know, I think the women in my community were constantly letting me know that I was not adhering to like what it meant to be a man, to be, to have machismo, right? To, to be tough and just strong and not sensitive and easy to, you know, cry. I used to really be really easy to cry, but um, so, yeah, you know, machismo is referring to that. And, you know, what's really interesting also is like many of these things transcend the cultures. I think the the dynamics of what entails, what it means to, you know, entail, like embody machismo are the same things that we could refer to when we think of toxic masculinity in many, in most cultures, really. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that, and even the way that you were saying that, like, the the women in in your life like kind of enforced it like i think that that is true too because um i mean in, in like typical like southern culture you have this highly like masculine culture and and everybody embodies that right everybody embodies this like sense of this is what a man is supposed to be this is what real men do this is what is supposed to you know this is a, a man's role and a woman's role and and this is kind of a sidebar, but have you ever heard the term Marianismo? So I feel like I know what you're talking about, but I'm not sure. I don't remember. Um, I don't remember where I heard it, but it's like the counterpart. It's it's like the female counterpart. It's like it's highly focused. I mean, it's rooted in like Mary, like the Virgin Mary. It's like a high emphasis on purity, and it's it's like the women, the the female counterpart to machismo, okay. right? And but I think that that. While those have like very specific like Latinx cultural ties, I think that those transcend into other cultures as well. Just like you were saying, is that like while women have this maybe more these high expectations to be pure, like and we did a whole episode on purity culture a while back. So there was that. But and they enforce each other. Right. These ideas that like women are supposed to be this way and men are supposed to be that way. And then you kind of police each other to try to fit yourselves in these gender boxes. And I think that the impact on queer people, especially as, as young queer people, as you're like really learning. And, and that's the other thing is like some, some queer people know from like when they're three, right. That they like, they know their identity and other people, it takes them longer and that's totally valid and fine. And, but the impact of that, like experiencing these cultural uh, messages around gender roles can really, I think, influence how you navigate accepting your identity, whether or not you are like, yeah, this is me, or whether you really resist it. And 
it impacts your coming out process later or, or earlier, depending on, you know, when you do that. So. Something you said earlier really makes me think of kind of that, what you're talking about there in terms of earlier, you said like as a young queer person, that depending on how, where you fall on the spectrum of like masculinity, you may try to like hide yourself and not be noticed. Um, and I think, you know, that is something that I, I, I've seen in a lot of friends who experienced many of, you know, the machismo culture, but also who are not Latino, but also navigating coming out and coming to terms with their sexual, sexual identity or their gender identity. And, you know, I think when you can't explore that in a healthy setting as a young person, I think it, it causes a delay. It causes you to really suppress your identity. And if there comes a time when you're able to finally unpack that, I think it could bring a whole lot to the surface that could, you know, go so many different ways. I think people, like you said, queer people are not a monolith. People navigate these, this coming of age in their own life in so many ways, in both positive, healthy ways and negative, unhealthy ways and, and everything in between. Like, it's not also black and white. Like it's, you know, and, and sometimes it can be a long process, but, you know, I think that certainly is something that I personally have seen and also, you know, professionally working with survivors who were navigating, coming out, being in a relationship where there was violence and navigating and kind of holding just this lack of clarity around, is this okay? Cause like, you know, I'm speaking of like gay men, for example, they have grown up thinking men are aggressive, men are you know, dominant. So if they're in a violent relationship, they may feel just gaslighted by culture in a sense that this is the norm. Like men are just kind of aggressive. This is what women deal with when they date men. So this is just what we have to deal with. Right. And so we may, one, we may be unable to like navigate away from that. And two, we may think that's just normal. And, and I think for some people, they may not know how to navigate around that. Yeah, I think also a lot of queer people, like gay or bisexual men, and men in particular, continue to embody some of those behaviors that they they know are unhealthy. But particularly towards women, it's like they have like misogynistic ideas and behaviors, and they think, oh, but because I'm gay, like it doesn't matter. Like I can I can call a woman this name, or I can like talk about their clothes this way, or like touch them without their consent because like I'm gay and it doesn't matter. And it's like, no, like that that is still an embodiment of these like culturally harmful masculine ideals and you don't get a pass just because you're not sexually interested in them. Like touching them without their consent is still assault i mean for for like at the at the very least battery at the, at the most you know like and so and so like you know you, you still embody these things you don't get a pass just because you identify in the lgbt community that is such a good point you know there's so many things to like so many nuances to this conversation yeah. because i think you know for me many of my friends were were, were female and so often that, and also because like that was the safe place again like I mm-hmm. wasn't like that I wasn't the, the the guy who was able to like internalize all the like you know queer identity and kind of portray that masculine like I couldn't do that so girls were safety they were my best friends they offered me a time to be, feel normal but like you said we're still socialized by the same things that all the rest of the folks are socialized and we're playing that out in our everyday lives. 
And so at times we're going to exhibit gay men, that is toxic masculine identities and kind of live out many of these things that we thought were silly and were not good for us. But still, that's how we're kind of walking this earth. We have to like unlearn the things that we've learned to really be allies to women and girls and to understand our own stuff. Because I definitely, you know, as a young advocate, as a young gay guy, like I thought, well, none of that really applies to me because I'm oppressed by it. I don't get a, you know, I'm getting a pass. You know, I'm not getting a pass from this, you know, this element of life. I'm with you. I'm I'm an ally. But it goes much deeper than that because you really, you could very much so unconsciously be playing out toxic masculine tropes in your relationships with other women and, you know, on behalf and in, in your work at, working with female survivors. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned queer survivors a minute ago, and I think that our response, our our systemic response to queer survivors is often rooted in harmful masculinity, like particularly when it's it's two men or two women, either one, like the response is often, well, well y'all can just fight it out. Like, it doesn't matter because y'all can y'all can hit each other. Um, and it's like, that's not that's not an appropriate response. And you see the like sexualization of lesbian couples often and it's like oh they would be hot to like watch them fight and it's like no like that's not this is not, none of this is okay and you see the the response of the dv system that's like really often an unsafe place for queer people because our our shelters don't um appropriately understand their relationships or you know for for trans folks like doesn't they don't use pronouns or they want to dead name people and and so um, there's a lot of work to do on our systems that are responding to violent relationships Um, and a lot of that has to do with our like clinging to masculine ideals or, or strict rigid gender norms around how we process who is the victim and who is the perpetrator so lots of work to do on that front and and it's important for us to acknowledge that our systems aren't perfect, that like while we our programs should be serving everyone, they're not always serving everyone equally, even when they think they are. You know, I'm so glad you brought up systems. One, I mean, we're in prevention. And so what we look at day in, day out is how systems um, are supporting the structures that are upholding violence in our communities. Right. And how do we change those systems? You know, something that we've seen quite a bit in, in so many different research studies, uh, so many folks have explored the impact of how systems approach. We'll just talk about young men and boys in general who are Black or Brown from BIPOC communities in general. And just the, just the, the wider likelihood or the higher likelihood that BIPOC young men are going to be disciplined in schools for things related to masculine identity as opposed to white young boys. And, you know, I think many of this stuff is rooted in kind of how communities and systems respond to BIPOC communities. But what we're seeing now is uh, is young people who are starting to really break out of that box. And starting to say, you know, I'm going to live my non-binary truth or my transgender truth. I'm going to not be this specific gender construct that you've 
identified uh, for me. I'm not, I'm not going to be that. And what we're now seeing is that school systems are now, in a sense, preying on those young people who are brave enough to challenge gender norms. And what we're seeing is an increase in terms of the pipeline from school to prison in young trans youth, for example, who are you know, trying to fight against those gender norms. Now, those young people are more likely to experience incarceration at a young age, which is really dangerous because that sets you up for an adult life of navigating the system as a trans person, for example. And so it's like, even when you try to break out of those rigid gender constructs, you could still face backlash in terms of even having to go to jail. Um, A recent research study that I read showed that young trans people were more likely to be disciplined in schools when they didn't adhere to certain dress code uh, obligations or, or requirements when they couldn't, you know, engage in public displays of affection or just kind of pushing away general gender boundaries. They're more likely to end up in, in school suspension, expelled, and at most end up in juvenile detention. And so we really have to see this because I think more and more young people are feeling empowered to live their truths. But if that means that they're going to be put into the system because they're being brave and trying to break out of these gender norms, that's going to be really complicated for people in the future. That example really underscores another, uh, our school system um, broadly in the United States uh, was really built and predicated on like control uh, as opposed to, I mean, not that education doesn't happen. Like, I mean, most of us have been through at least part of the public education system, but it's really designed to be to control kids. Right. And um, we did an episode on the school to prison pipeline a few episodes ago. And I think that that is is a really important example. And and to give the example that the sports bans that we mentioned earlier, like all of these efforts across the country to ban trans girls from sports school sports is also rooted i mean rooted in masculine like harmful masculinity and that like wanting people to fit into a certain gender box both like physically and like the way they express but also the idea that women need to be protected that's that's the the line that i've kind of heard the most is that we have to protect women's sports and it's just a, it's paternalistic, and B, it is a conversation that is so nuanced about where this this young person, this young trans person is in their development, what kind of treatment they are or are not taking, um, and really, ultimately, they just want to be a kid and be a part of a team that plays the sport that they want to play as the person that they are and not um, being forced to be someone that they're not. Um, and then also be subject to the the violence that that could come from that, the being forced to be on the boys team when you are a trans girl or a girls team if you're a trans boy. And like, so just really not taking into account young people's lives or health or their families either. So, but one of the things that really impacts the way that we learn gender norms, um, the way that we learn what a queer person is supposed to be, particularly if you don't have any out queer people in your family or in your neighborhood growing up, is through the media uh, and uh, the media representation of, of what LGBTQ folks 
look like, how they act, how they sound. And it's interesting because we have all of these messages that that tell us that queer people don't belong, that they they don't have a place um, in our society or or that that place is like a, a sinful place or a bad place or like whatever. And that they should try to fit into the gender box that they were assigned at birth. But then the portrayal in media is often super flamboyant for gay men or super butch for gay women. And that's what you're seeing. So if, if you're identifying as a queer person and that's the person that you're seeing, like either a, you're going to process as like, Oh, this is bad. And then you process internally is like, I don't want to be that person. Um, or that's what you, that's how you learn to act because like, you're like, Oh, I identify with this person. So like, this is what I'm supposed to be. And so the media is this huge driver of identity development, I think. Thank you for bringing up the media. I, you know, I was really, you know, we've talked about systems. We've talked about so many ways in which harmful masculinity is really upheld. And, you know, the media is absolutely a place. I mean, you really hit the knob ahead in terms of as a young queer person, as just a queer person in general, and you may be in a community where there are not a lot of folks that you can identify with the media is where we're going to get our messages, where we're going to feel connected. You know, that means both like movies and TV and newscasts and newspapers, but also like social media, right? Like, I mean, nowadays, there are definitely times when I'm watching my phone instead of a TV. I'm like on Instagram, um, on Facebook and watching the content that folks are creating. And I think, you know, so much of the messages we get are are really like under the rug. Like they're not always so blatant that like this is a qualification for being a man. Like, but it's rather in how I think you said this also is like how folks are portrayed. It's not like the overt message that people are then internalizing and, and learning. It's all the nuances, the way folks talk, the way they act, the things they wear, the things they, the dialogue and whatever you're discussing and how it, it informs how people are going to feel about certain things. And so I think that is also something really important for me to think about, you know, much like in today's racist society, we see that, you know, racism is not this overt in your face thing always, like it can be that, but often it's subtle microaggressions. Mm -hmm. It's personal belief systems that people hold private, but exert publicly in ways that are harmful. And in many of the, in, in, in all of those things, we see media upholding those ideals. But I think also we're in an age now where folks are starting to be brave enough to like switch it up. One of my most favorite Instagrammers, he's probably on TikTok, but I'm kind of behind on the TikTok realm, is this young person named Adam Ray. Okay, I think he's like 20 something, but he's young to me. So I just, I love what he's doing for identity. I think he is showing that you can be who you are and you can embody everything that you're about. And, you know, that can be seen as feminine. It can be seen as queer or however folks see it, but nevertheless, like he's living his truth. And I, I can think of so many other, you know, social media stars that are really trying to flip the script of like, 
this is what gender means to me. This is what it means to be masculine. This is what it means to be feminine. This is what it means to be in between. And it's all okay, which is something that I think we all need to learn about is the spectrum, right? I mean, there's a spectrum. Yeah, I think one of the one of the interesting things that I've been seeing a lot on social media recently is a like lamenting of how the media reacts to straight, usually white men who are more recently doing things like wearing dresses or painting their nails or like wearing jewelry or whatever. And they get all of this praise for like breaking barriers, but it's stuff that queer people have been doing for a long time. And then like being like they have received like abuse and ostracism. Is that the word? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, for for doing those things, but now that these straight, generally white men are breaking gender barriers, they're getting all this praise, and it's like, but queer people have been doing this for like ever, and you hate them. So like, why why is this the problem, or why is this praiseworthy now? And I think that's so interesting that 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 is something that's been happening because I, I do think that it needs to be called out because often back to media representation it's like queer people are often represented as white people um they're often represented as like really fit like gay guys in particular or like super butch lesbians and and it just feeds into those stereotypes and it's like this is not what the community looks like like certainly those people exist right like i mean that's that's just true but like there needs to be a wider representation of of what it means to be queer and in those representations like particularly in like the like late 90s early 2000s media like it was always the 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 gay character was always single like they were never in a relationship because the media outlets didn't want to show a gay relationship on TV or and they were like the sassy best friend who always like had something quirky to say and even in other representations so you think about like friends um i don't know what your thoughts on friends is and like if you've rewatched it at all but like it was a great show i remember loving friends and like i still think some of it is funny but like watching it now i'm just like there is so much like coded homophobia in the writing of this show and aggression towards the trans community and under you know just really upholding messages that are so harmful like you william i recently went back because i was such a fan of the show when i was younger i went back and watched it and i was heartbroken to be honest with you to hear all these things and struggle like was this funny back in the day like is this you know i think the whole storyline of of chandler's uh chandler's dad and now his you know identifies as his mother now was probably one of those storylines that really, you know, watching it again shocked me because I was like, I couldn't believe like this was on daytime TV. And I recently had that same experience rewatching Will and Grace, which is maybe kind of controversial because I know Will and Grace is a beloved sitcom, but I was really uncomfortable quite a bit. And especially when I think of all the things that all the, all of the, the messages about trans folks that we have in, in the world today and seeing so many jokes about trans folks, um, non-binary folks, and just the punchlines that they were. And it, it makes me really sad. Yeah, Will and Grace is another... Like, I'm glad you brought Will and Grace up because I was thinking about it. It's like... Because one of the things that I really like about Will and Grace is that like 
you have Jack, who is this like flamboyant character, but you have Will, who is who's very much not for the most part. And so it, it shows a little bit of that uh, spectrum of personality for a gay man. But they're both white. This isn't like a diverse moment and and it still falls into those like stereotyping tropes of how characters have been represented and how their storylines develop i do think at the time it was groundbreaking right it was it was it was a yes. you know and i think that that is worth acknowledging and you know, now like we've progressed, we've learned and we can look back and be like, wow, like that is a reflection of the culture at the time. And it wasn't great. But at the time, we can also simultaneously acknowledge that like that was a huge step for representation. And you think of shows like Queer as Folk and um, even shows like um, True Blood, things where there were there were people and characters that were queer they were like exploring their sexuality or their gender identity and which is great but like it's like how were they shamed in the show or how were they attacked or treated or what were the other dynamics that they were experiencing so that's a lot that's important i mean and that is an important thing to remember i don't know how many folks that i talked to both you know will and grace was on when i was in high school and i was just graduating i was just coming out and, you know, I, I've heard from so many friends and from some family members that said, like, I watch Will and Grace and I definitely get what you're dealing with and what you're going through. And, you know, they were offering messages of affirmation and support. And so many of them said, like, I watch Will and Grace and it gave me a different perspective. And so you're right. It's, it's, it's a snapshot of where we are in that culture. I'm happy to say, like, I've educated myself enough to know that many of those jokes are not okay. But, you know, to that same point, you know, that young person or that person who hasn't had a chance to really dig into their psyche or understand how media messages can shape their perspectives on communities and peoples, that's where it can get really dangerous. And, you know, that's where, you know, that's where prevention is so important. And that's where having communities that are addressing the root causes of violence, which is often oppression. Um, And in this particular arena, we're talking about oppression towards LGBTQ communities. If we can have communities that have spaces where young people and people of all ages, not just young people, but people of all ages to, to be able to have like this critical discourse around what they're taking in, what they're learning about their world and meet other people that's what we need for us to like be able to unpack all those things that we see in media what we're seeing when we're on our you know when you're on dating apps when you're on social media like we need a we need spaces where communities can unpack all that because it's so much deeper than just what's portrayed on tv yeah, and I think just a few last thoughts on media before we you, yes, move please. to prevention, because while a lot of the media representation is there, a lot of it's targeted towards adults, right? And not to say that queer adults don't need that representation because they absolutely do. But a few years ago, I don't know, the timeline is fuzzy, but there was like Disney had their first like openly gay or 
um, queer character. Uh, honestly, have no idea what show it was. I just remember the like media storm about it. I feel uh, like it was Beauty, the Beauty and the Beast live action show. Oh, was so that where it was? That too, that like okay. LeFou in there. But but there was a, a show okay. on like Disney, the the TV network that had a had a young person who was, I mean, maybe like twelve, come out. And and of course, people like flip their lids about it. But it's so important for young people to have that, um, which is why I also think that uh, musicians like Little Nas X and Ben Platt and like people who are telling queer stories in music, which have been happening for a long time. You have like Melissa Etheridge and Elton John and, you know, people have been telling queer stories in music, but I feel like it's more explicit. And like it's like the music videos are allowed to have queer characters and things like that. And so I think that that's so important, particularly for young people who are dialed into things like that. And I think one of the other important things around representation is soap operas. And I say that uh, because uh, my grandmother watches soap operas. Like, I feel like it's like an generally an older female demographic. And you have these uh, queer storylines that are introduced to soap operas. And I don't know how many of them were happy about it when they were first on, but like, my mom watches soap operas, my grandmother does. And like, in every soap opera, there is at least one or two queer characters within like relationships who are having like these dynamic things. And of course they're all hot and they're all like mostly white, but like still different line of criticism for media. Um, but, um, but it's important for these relationships to be normalized in their eyes too, to say, Oh, I could relate this real life relationship to this relationship on screen, you know, and even just getting them exposed to it where they're not like, making weird sounds or like raving about it against, you know, writing letters to the the media companies or whatever. It's just a normal part of their TV show. And when it happens, it happens. And I thought, I think that's really important too. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think, you know, much of what we've talked about today is kind of like a lemon doom around like representation and how that representation has really infiltrated the minds of so many folks to think like, this is how you should behave if you're a man. And, if you're a woman, but we are, you know, there, there have been folks who are trying to like break those stereotypes. Um, you know, I see so many great, I love animation. And I think nowadays there's so many great options, uh, shows like She-Ra or Steven Universe or Adventure Time, which are, <laughs> they're probably marketed to younger people, but adults like me like it as well. But, you know, I see that these shows are starting to show more nuanced characters both who I, who would be identified as female or male, but are breaking out of the box around what it means to be like these specific genders. And even, you know, and, and those are just to name a few, I think the list goes on and we're starting to see this more. And I think that's so important because I think the world is very diverse. And I think many of the harmful masculine traits that we, that we can think about are also positives for a lot of men and boys and should not just be discounted as things that you should go away from. But I think equally, there are a lot of just nuances in terms of who, what your identity could be. And having that representation on screen is so important. And I think it's really important for BIPOC communities because I think, you know, I think black and brown boys get, I think they get a tough rap when it comes to the, like exhibition of harmful masculinity. Like, I think they really do get a, a 
of really bum rap and they're in particular singled out as like troublemakers or aggressive and that's not completely true i think you have again that's not true for everybody because not everybody's a monolith like there's such diversity in the world and it all deserves to be in the forefront so that folks can have options yeah and i think i think black and brown men in particular like you were saying do get a bad rap when it comes to displaying their masculinity Uh, but I, i think they also get a a worse rap when they're displaying their femininity um, and so it's because of the racism that we perpetuate in this country through our systems, um, both like explicitly and implicitly. I think that that they get them the worst of it on both ends. Um, and so that's absolutely something that that I think queer people of color struggle with um, because you you can't be overly masculine you can't be overly feminine and even in between you're still struggling with that intersection so and it's important it's important for us to think about i think when we think of you know risks to public health i mean young people who are trans uh young people who are lgbtq who are facing family rejection or issues like that are more likely to experience wanting to commit suicide or actually committing suicide So it can be as serious as that or so many things, you know, that come before all of that. So I think it it is important for us to think about how we reach both young people and also people, you know, people along the spectrum of age with messages of, of acceptance and support because our society and media and the world can often not give those messages and it can be hard for folks to find those communities and so you know folks who are are listening today i think if if you know young people who may be pushing you know who may be questioning their their sexual orientation who may be trying to come into their gender identity and you don't know how to support them i think you know it always starts with acceptance and and seeing them and, and like seeing who they are as people and appreciating that yeah and i think that that really bridges us kind of like as we're wrapping down the episode into prevention and how and how do we go about doing that and i think kind of bridging the media the media conversation with a prevention conversation is that media is doing some of that prevention by providing some representation and we can increase representation and intersectional representation and help people feel like they belong i think that's a big part of prevention um, but also teaching people how to have those exact conversations you were just talking about um, with a young person or or with an adult person who isn't out yet or is coming into their identity as a, as an older person. How do you have a conversation with them? So like, what what would you think are the biggest strategies maybe of prevention when it comes to shifting gender roles and helping programs or communities become more inclusive for queer people? You know, I think, I think we're going to, you're going to have to have a multi-level approach to really make an impact, right? I think on an individual level, I think you, it starts by noticing people. I, I know so many teachers, my husband is a teacher and I hear so many stories of both from my husband and from, from teacher friends who receive letters years later from, you know, queer kids, trans kids that they taught. And they say things like, you used the right pronouns with me. You 
are a gay man and I knew that about you and it made me really happy to be in your class because I saw a good role model for myself. You used my um, my name, my my preferred name and not my dead name in class and on my records and none of my family would do that. I hear stories like this all the time where people just on an individual level notice, acknowledge and respect the, the beliefs of, of queer folks and trans folks in their sphere of influence. And so first and foremost, I think folks should never discount how much reaching out, how much saying you're okay, I, you're, I hear your pronouns and I'm going to call you those pronouns or this is your name and I'm going to use your name. I think part of it is also, you know, part of what I hear from my teacher friends who are impacting youth are also like they want to have conversations around Pride Month and what it means to have, you know, all these, this range of identity. Um, and so I think, you know, it starts as simple as that, you know, and, and we're seeing also in research where young people who were given a, a moment of connection with a, a teacher, a, a camp leader, um, a religious leader, a parent, uh, a, a family member, when they were noticed and accepted in that moment, it can counteract years of toxic messages that people are internalizing that could lead them to committing suicide. It counteracts all of that and gives them a moment of like that phrase that we know so well, it gets better. Like it really, it really makes that real for them. So I think on an individual level, it starts there. Thinking about community systems and, and how communities can create spaces that are both affinity spaces for folks who identify as queer or trans to come and, and mingle with each other, to learn from each other, to experience their art or their passions are really important. You know, I think most specifically young people, they don't get an option to kind of go outside of their community sphere very often. So having options within your community where folks can meet up, you know, some, a program in Austin that I'm, I just think is so amazing is called The Q. It's a local organizing group here in Austin. They're based out of eight services of Austin. And what they do is they community build. They invite folks from the Austin queer community to come and eat pizza, get goodies, um, engage in community development. And all the while, they're, in, they're, they're infusing their programming and space with messages of positive health, support, acknowledgement. So I think we, we need more of these spaces in communities across Texas, which is can be hard. I mean, we have, you know, I think of the community I come from, and I think it, could, it might be hard to have a, you know, a queer meetup space in the community that I came from, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. I think from a macro perspective, we need to stop engaging in legislation that only seeks to stigmatize communities that are historically marginalized already, i.e. the trans community in Texas. We need to approach things from a informed perspective, not a perspective that's informed by stigma and just old tropes. We need to really identify what the issues are. And the issues are that communities are at risk for public health fallouts, at risk for 
um, violence um, in their communities because we're still at times upholding these really kind of archaic structures in our society. Yeah, I think all of those are really fantastic strategies. I think the only thing that I would add is that it can't just be queer people who are doing these things. I mean, certainly queer people are going to drive a lot of that change and queer people need to be listened to and centered in those conversations. But straight people, cis people have to be advocating for this change and for um, their neighbors. And so it, it finding that right program to get involved and, and listening to your queer neighbors about which which programs are actually helping the queer community and which aren't and and really helping put resources into those programs and those those communities is is really going to be vital you know the last thing I'll, I'll say also you know and then this is kind of maybe debunking something that i just said you know i think of like my community where i grew up um and how hard it would be to one funding wise to find a space to develop a you know a local queer community-led organization but we also have social media and social media can empower us to find people in our local communities and our zip codes people who identify along various spectrums to create virtual spaces where people could first come together in a more safe environment and maybe eventually branch out to, to meeting in person but I mean if anything we've seen in this last year, is that there is a lot of power in the virtual space. And so I think organizers, both allies and folks who identify as such should not discount the power of creating a Facebook group for your neighborhood and yeah. a queer Facebook group, a trans Facebook group, and trying to find folks to, to, to join it and have conversations and to share of themselves. So much support can come from that. And learning how to, how to make those those virtual spaces, safe spaces, right? And and uphold the bravery and safety of the people who are participating and um, knowing how to appropriately respond when people aren't so supportive. So I think that there's a, there's a lot that can be done. There's a lot about um, the ways that prevention and having this conversation can really lead to a reduction in self-harm, a reduction in intimate partner violence, community violence. So it's all, it's all so important. Um, real quick, before we go, any uh, hope and dream that, or dream, hopes and dreams um, that you have related to this conversation and Pride Month, maybe? Um, I hope that everybody has a great Pride Month and that you engage in some of the events that we have planned for the month and that your you engage in events that your community has planned for the month. You know, I think a hope that I would like to see and an area that I think is also needed and kind of goes into like, what can we do as well? Is like, we need more research on this. Like we need more evidence around what communities are dealing with, especially in terms of intimate partner violence. I think there is a huge gap in research and studies that are being done in terms of the impact of intimate partner violence, specifically on queer communities and specifically on trans communities. I think there's still so much more work that needs to be done in terms of researching what are really great evidence-based models for developing programs that support queer youth and trans youth. And, you know, in my off time, I sometimes like to jump on to the um, archives. Uh, I like to, to look at research and there are huge gaps in what is available or the research is really old 
And for those in our work, I mean, we're, we're very much so wanting to be evidence informed, um, depending on your funding streams, you need this happen. So my hope and dream is that researchers out there hear the need for more information. We need more information in terms of supporting the community. And I hope that that happens because I think there's so much more to learn. We don't know everything. That, that's for sure. Yeah. And I hope that in that research, it's not just about white gay men. It is an intersectional approach to all identities and also uh, for people of color specifically as well. I also hope that our legislators do better, that we um, moving into the future are better advocates legislatively and elect people who, who care about queer people and the issues that impact them. So that's probably my biggest hope and uh like you said roy i do wish everyone a happy pride and um like you also said we do have some events coming up this month and we'll be sure to link a few organizations in the episode description as well as any links that we have for any of our ongoing pride events at tcfv which will will have probably like five virtual events throughout the month so be sure to connect with us on social media about those and look for our registration links. Roy, thanks so much for having this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me, William. It was so much fun. I think we could go on for so much longer, but I think we need to wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And of course, more good vibes and good thoughts to Sarah. And we will see you next week with our final episode of Down the Rabbit Hole for this season. So everyone have a happy Friday and a great week. And we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.